how the way, the way we use language, we often take weighty words, weighty words, and we dilute them. We, we kind of cheapen them through overuse and maybe misapplication. I'll give you an example. Uh, you may uh, ask your teenager, how was that concert? And they say, that was epic. Epic? Not just cool or great, but epic? I mean, was it, was it heroic? Is the guy on stage a hero? Did they solve a world problem? Because when you read epics, that's what you're reading. Well, no, not that. I'm just saying it was really good. Dad, leave me alone, right? You go to a restaurant, someone asks you, how was the food? You say, we had this appetizer. It was incredible. Incredible? Like, you can't believe it? Impossible to believe that that appetizer is served? Or extremely difficult to bring your mind to a point of belief that such an appetizer could possibly be served? Well, we don't mean that. We just say incredible. We just say epic. We just say awesome. Were you filled with awe? No. It's just a game. Right? It was just a home run. Awesome? Filled with awe? So these words, through the way we use them, we kind of bring the weight down. The problem is, when something actually is epic, when something actually is incredible, when there's something actually amazing, we have to reach for new words, right? Because it's not good enough to say awesome. Now when we look at this passage, the question I want to pose to you is, what does it take to amaze Jesus? What would it take to get Jesus to go, wow, I am astonished? Now here you have a guy who spent 40 days in the wilderness, didn't eat anything. He's out there with the wild animals. Angels are ministering to him. Satan himself is tempting him. And we don't know if it's an audible voice or visions or it looked like visions and audible together when you read the other gospel writers. Survives that. Jesus is a survivor. He's, uh, he's totally dependent on God. Um, he had the awesomest baptism anyone could ever think of, or there's a dove that comes down, or, you know, and the Holy Spirit, and you hear God's voice saying, this is my son, and John the Baptist, whom everyone respects, is saying, I'm not even worthy to baptize this guy. And then he waltzes into town, and if somebody has a disease, he gets rid of the disease through a touch or through a word. If someone is a demoniac and has a demon, he expels the demon. If someone needs forgiveness, he, he grants forgiveness. A little girl is dead, dead. Oh, too late for Jesus. No, no, no raises her from the dead. A man with a withered hand has a healed hand, fully functioning now. Now he can go do manual labor or whatever else he's not been able to do all this time. What can possibly wow a man like that? They're on a boat. They're about to die because of this tempest on the sea. And he just gets up, maybe yawns, does a little stretch, a couple shoulder circles, and shh, right? Calms the sea. Everyone else on the boat is amazed that this man but what can possibly amaze that man? What would make Jesus go, okay, wow, I've calmed storms, I've cast out thousands of demons, but that's amazing. I'm astonished. We put the question this way. What would it take for Jesus to be astonished at you? Well, we see Jesus' astonishment in this passage. You don't want to be astonished by Jesus. You don't want to astonish Jesus this way. We're going to see that in Mark chapter 6. If you go to the New Testament, it's the second book in the New Testament. Mark chapter 6 is the only time Mark records that Jesus is astonished. He records other times where other people are 
astonished. They're saying, wow, that was epic, or wow, that's amazing, or they're totally marveling. But in this passage, Jesus is the one that's astonished, and you'll see that in verse 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 6. And he, Jesus, marveled because of their unbelief. That's what Jesus marveled at. He marveled at the fact that he doesn't matter how many people he heals, it doesn't matter how clearly he proclaims his message, it doesn't matter how many people he impresses, it doesn't matter what miracles he worked, there's still going to be people that just don't believe it. And that makes Jesus go, wow. Wow. Really. That's astonishing. That's incredible. That's amazing. We don't want to astonish Jesus in that way. So let's get a little background. How does Jesus get to the point where he's marveling or amazed? Astonished is another way to translate it. At their unbelief. Look at verse 1. Jesus just healed uh, this woman with the hemorrhaging disease. He healed, he rose the little girl from the dead. And then in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, He went away from there and came to his hometown. So here's Jesus' homecoming. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not... Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. We'll pause there for a second. You see the background. Jesus walks in. He goes to the synagogue. It's the Sabbath, and uh, the religious folks and the Jewish people would go to the synagogue to hear a passage of Scripture read. And then someone would stand up and expound on that passage, much like what we do here. Uh, We read a passage, explain it. That's my job. My job is not to come up with something new to say. My job is to take this ancient passage that we say is God's word and help you understand it. That's, That's my role. That's my job. And so this is a similar role that Jesus was fulfilling in the synagogue at that time. He gets up. He reads a passage. He explains it. We're not sure which passage. Uh, but he gets up and, and he does his little exposition. And the people were astonished. A little bit of a different word used in verse 6, but it's the same idea. They're, they're marveling at Jesus, but not in a good way. It's not like, wow, amazing, I can't wait to come back next Sabbath. It's another kind of astonished. It's more like flabbergasted or aghast, shocked, scandalized. Horrified, maybe? That's disgusting. That kind of shock. That kind of astonishment. I can't believe somebody would be that brazen about teaching something that is that ridiculous. Can you believe this guy? And you hear it in their questions. Where, where did this man get these things? Right? What is the wisdom given to him? So they're questioning his source. Right? And they call him... Isn't this guy, in verse 3, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? We don't know if what carpenter exactly meant. It was a broader term. It didn't necessarily mean carpentry the way we think it, but some kind of manual labor builder. He, he was a builder of something, as, his, uh, as Joseph was. 
And they're not denigrating that. They're not saying, how can someone who's a manual laborer have anything to teach? A lot of them were manual laborers. That's, that's fine. That's not the problem. What they're saying is, he didn't go to a rabbinic school. You know, he didn't go to what we would call seminary. He doesn't have any degrees. He doesn't have a Master of Divinity. He doesn't have a Bachelor of Arts in Bible Theology or something like that. He's a carpenter, man. So why is he standing up there and telling us what the Bible says, and he doesn't have any Bible training? Then they want to know where he gets his wisdom. That's the second question they ask. What is the wisdom given to him? In other words, okay, he read that passage and he's giving us an interpretation of it, but what makes his interpretation so right? We hear that a lot. You explain something to somebody and they go, yeah, but everyone's got a different interpretation of the Bible, so I don't want to hear the Bible. They don't want to hear it because they just want to use the interpretation excuse. People have different interpretations. Okay, but why don't you read it for yourself and see which interpretation is right. See which one is clear to you. No, they don't want to hear his explanation. They just want to go, where does he get it from? Where did he, where, what website did he download that at? What's his source? What rabbi is behind him? He doesn't have any rabbis behind him. This guy came out of nowhere. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? Then look at their third question. How were such mighty works done by his hands? They don't go, he hasn't even done any mighty works. Those stories, we don't believe those. No, they do believe them. So now what's their excuse? Where does he get the power to do that? What do you mean? Remember back in chapter 3, they were blaming it on Satan. He must have satanic power. That's how he casts out demons. He casts out demons with Satan's own power. And then Jesus kind of upended that logic. He's like, why would, why would a general flank his own army? Why would you ever do that? You would lose the battle doing that. That doesn't make any sense. And then they go, shut up with your dumb logic. We hate you. Right? Because they don't want to hear his wisdom or his interpretation. So they're just coming, they're just grasping for straws. Where is he coming from? Why doesn't he have a rabbi behind him? Where, his, where does he get the power to do these mighty works? Isn't he just a carpenter, verse 3? Isn't he the son of Mary? Now, some people think the reason why he says son of Mary and not son of Joseph is because Joseph is dead at this time. But some scholars think that the, what they're trying to do is bring up a possible illegitimate birth. Because many people know, hey, she was showing a little bump before they got married. I heard a story that she was pregnant before they got married. And I'm not buying the whole overshadowed by the Holy Spirit thing. We know how pregnancy happens before marriage. And it's a little jab, like the son of Mary. That's possible. And then they talk about his brothers. Look, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. I almost feel like they're like, look, no diss to you guys, but he's just a brother to you guys. You guys are just normal Joes, man. None of you are going to get up and do any teaching. Why should he get up and do any teaching? And then the sisters don't even get names. And then, and then like, aren't his sisters, don't his sisters live with us? Those women people, right? It's just very generic. It just keeps getting more and more generic. Uh, they're kind of throwing them under the bus. These are the kind of things that they're using as excuses. And at the end of verse 3, here's the problem, Okay. They took offense at him. Jesus offended them. That's the problem. If you ever have somebody that's lashing out at you and they're picking at little things and you're like, how can those little things be such a big deal? 90% of the time, it's not the little things that they're hemming and hawing about. There's something else underneath that and they know it's a dumb reason, so they, they reach for the little things. You wore this sweater and I hate that color. You know I hate that color. How dare you wear that? And you're like, what are you talking about? Something else offended them, right? 
And this is what's happening with Jesus. Is it really about rabbis? Is it really about where he gets the power to do mighty works? Is it really about his interpretation of a passage? No, that's not what offended them. Verse 4, Jesus said to them in response, he uses a proverb that was known in, the, in their day, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, in his hometown, and among his relatives and in his own household. So Jesus is pointing out the fact that I come home to my own group, the people that remember me as a child. They remember me bopping around in the streets and shooting hoops in the milk crate with the bottom cut out of it. That kind of memory, right? And there's no respect. There, there's no, wow, he has a lot to teach. It's the, wait a minute, I know this kid. I, my cousin changed his diapers. We used to milk the same cows or whatever. You know, we just, we used to, we went to the same school. I know his brothers. His sisters are around here somewhere. It's this familiarity that actually blocks them from being able to receive what Jesus is giving them. We have a similar phrase that we use today. Familiarity breeds contempt. Have you heard that phrase? What does that phrase mean? That phrase means when you kind of don't know somebody, it's easy to respect them. They seem cool. They seem like they've got a lot going on. But then when you really get to know them, it doesn't take long before they say something that bothers you. It doesn't take long before you realize their track record isn't perfect. There's something behind them. And this is what every politician is bracing for once they enter a race. Here's my facade. Once you enter the race, dirt is going to come out. So how do we manage that a little bit? Because the more familiar we become with somebody, the easier it is for us to kind of knock them down a few pegs. And Jesus is exploiting that principle, using that to describe what's happening in his hometown. That he's not receiving honor because they're familiar. It's almost like inoculation. You know how inoculations work. They take a vaccine and they're sticking you with the very bug that you're trying to get protected from, right? But it's just a little bit and your antibodies start moving to go, go to work on that little virus so that when the big virus comes, the body's like, hey, we're used to this already. We can, we can take this out, at least in theory. Didn't seem to really work this year with the flu. But uh, that's how inoculation works. Now what Jesus is saying is, these people are kind of inoculated toward my message because they're already familiar with it and they've already built little antibodies to kind of attack the message. So when I bring the message full on in the synagogue, they're not ready for it because they've already built up in their minds like this resistance. Like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to listen to this carpenter dude. Go build a chair, man. Don't, don't, don't come in here with your I fulfill the Old Testament stuff, you weirdo, right? We don't want to hear that. Go out there and bop around with your brothers, okay? And so this familiarity has blocked him from having an effective message in his hometown. And if some of you feel like you're alone in your family, you come home from church and you try to tell your family or you try to tell your, your closest, the people that are closest to you about this life-changing experience you've had in Jesus Christ and they just don't get it, you're not alone. Jesus couldn't convert his family either. Think about that. Jesus couldn't even get his own brothers on board. When you read John 7, 5, John tells us his brothers didn't even believe. Now, if these are the guys that we think they are, they believe later. And James uh, heads up a whole region of a church. He produces an epistle if he's the same guy. Jude produces an epistle if he's the same Jude. It's tough because these names are like Smith today, you know. Um, but it, it may be. At this point in time, his brothers are not on board. They don't believe he's the Messiah. 
They don't believe the stories that mom used to say about being overshadowed by the Spirit and all this stuff and how he's fulfilling the Old Testament. They don't, they don't believe it. His own family. So if you ever feel alone, remember, it's not, can I be a more effective witness? It might just be, you're following Jesus' footsteps. Not everyone around you is going to get it. And it's hard for them to hear it from you because they raised you. So what do you have to say? Same way they treated Jesus. It's not new. Verse 5 is interesting. Verse 5 is interesting. It says, And he, Jesus, could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Jesus couldn't do any mighty work there in his hometown, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I love that Jesus finds exceptions and some people do get relieved of their diseases and sicknesses and some people do get healed. But by and large, the big, momentous actions that we see him take, calming storms, removing legions of demons, raising the dead, um, not colds, but leprosy and crippled hands. He's, He's not able to do those big wow moments there because of their unbelief. Why is that so interesting? Well, it's interesting because of what Jesus requires in order to do the big, the big wild miracles, right? He requires faith to do that. Now, I want to pause there a second and bring up this point. Jesus was... Uh, invited into the synagogue and invited to teach. How do I know that? I don't know that for a fact. I think it's good guesswork because that's how synagogues operated. There were synagogue rulers and you couldn't just get up and teach. You couldn't just go up there and push the ruler of the synagogue aside and say, here's my interpretation, right? It was, it was organized. And they were fine with Jesus at first. They were fine with the Jesus of miracles. They heard about the calming storm, the calm storm. They heard about these mighty works. They, they referenced it, right? And they believe that they're true because they're not doubting that the works are true. Now they're doubting the source of it. But it's only now after he spoke the message. Before, it was like, hey, why don't you, why don't you come on up and deliver a message? Hey, people, Jesus is here. Oh, the synagogue probably had record attendance that day. People are sitting there all bunched in and they want to hear this guy that heals leprosy. They want to hear this guy that the Pharisees can't stand. They want to hear this guy that's, that's turning things around in the landscape. So Jesus is acceptable when we have an acceptable form of who Jesus is. He's the miracle worker. He's the knowledgeable guy. What changed? What changed so that he now exits the synagogue and he can't do big miracles there? Their unbelief. Okay, their unbelief in what? See, some would use this passage and go, see, this is why Jesus hasn't performed an amazing miracle in your life. You haven't believed hard enough that he can do a miracle like that in your life. You haven't believed hard enough that he can remove that disease. You haven't believed hard enough that he can fix your uh, diagnosis. So just believe that harder. See, he couldn't do the big works because they didn't believe he could do the big works. That's not what it says. Their disbelief wasn't in his mighty works. They believed in those. Their disbelief was in whatever he said when he got up there with Scripture. His message was the offense. 
There's nothing offensive about Jesus healing people. There's nothing offensive about an acceptable form of Jesus that is cool with everybody. He just wants to get around fires and sing Kumbaya. He roasts really good s'mores, not too burned, just a little tan, you know, perfect. That's the cool Jesus that everybody wants to be around. But as soon as Jesus opens his mouth and proclaims truth, it's offensive. Now suddenly we don't want him in our synagogue. This is the last time we see Jesus teaching in a synagogue, in this gospel, and we're only in chapter 6. right? This is the last time we see people kind of being okay with him coming in to their religious circle. Jesus opens his mouth, teaches the truth, and now suddenly the miracles aren't cool. The miracles are some other... So he's getting the source to do that from somewhere else. Suddenly he's not good enough to teach in the synagogue, even though they just allowed him to. Now suddenly it's, wait, who's the rabbi behind you? You weren't asking me who the rabbi was before. Now you want to know who the rabbi was. Why didn't I go to school and I'm just a carpenter and I'm not good enough to speak in a synagogue? Why are the people two-faced like that? Because when they allowed Jesus to speak in the synagogue, they had a view of Jesus that, was, that fit what they wanted. Jesus opens up, speaks the truth. That doesn't fit what we want. Get out. And it wasn't just like, we don't want to invite him here again. They want to kill him. We know that from other passages. So the problem is not that Jesus is a miracle worker. The problem is his message. What is his message? I want to quickly turn you back to chapter 1. You can just flip back to chapter 1 really quick. Mark tells us what Jesus' message was. Jesus comes out of that temptation in the wilderness that I mentioned earlier. He's ready to begin his ministry. In verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Now he's starting his ministry, proclaiming the gospel of God. How did Jesus proclaim the gospel of God? What did he say? Verse 15, The time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was Jesus' message. That was Jesus' message when he healed people. That was Jesus' message when he cast out demons. That was his message to his disciples. That was his message to the Pharisees. Whatever town he was in, whatever place he was, that was his message. He would bring it from different texts. He'd bring it from different Old Testament passages. He would make it the connections in different ways, to be sure. But his message was the same. He was there to proclaim the gospel. And the gospel is... Believe in the gospel, repent. Repent and believe in the gospel. So briefly, what is the gospel? Sounds like Christianese, words that we throw around that only Christians understand. So I think it's, we should frequently pause and unpack some of these words. Gospel is just a word that means good news. If you read this in the Greek, it just would be the word good news. All one word. What is the good news? That you can repent. The good news is you can repent. And on the other side of that repentance, there's no guesswork. So consider other religious frameworks. There's religions that incorporate meditation and prayer and good works. Do good works and the good works will come back to you. Right? In a cycle. And eventually when there's enough of it, the cycle will end up in a place where you are kind of freed from, from the cycle. Right? The question is, how many good works do I have to do to counteract my own bad works? How many bad works have I done today? How many bad works am I even aware of? 
Is it possible that I'm so bad that if I had to pull out a sheet of paper and write down everything bad I did in the last hour that I might miss some stuff? I'm too callous to even notice it was bad. Is that possible? If I'm not holy, I'm not righteous, and my mind is a little messed up, my heart is a little bit crooked, might I miss some things? Is it possible that the good works that I do are tainted with false motive? In other words, am I doing that good work to help that person or am I doing that good work so that the karma comes back to me and gets me out of this mess? Well then, was, is that loving then? Is that self-sacrificial love or is that self-serving? It's really hard to tell. And we're kind of too messed up to figure those things out. Ask a good Muslim. A good Muslim that reads their Quran. Do you know for sure that when you die and meet Allah that he'll let you in? The right theological answer would be no. I just hope that he does. Why would they say that? Because as they think back, did they miss a prayer? Did they miss a prayer? Did they face the wrong way? Did they displease him in any way? The Muslims agree that we're sinners and we deserve judgment. We're agreed there. The difference is how do you get out of that? Well, we just hope Allah just is like, never mind, come in. Or, yeah, you did enough prayers. It's not sure. The gospel is good news. It's refreshing news because it's sure. Jesus took it. What if I did a lot of bad things? Have you read the Passion? What do you deserve? Punches? Do you deserve, do you deserve your beard to get plucked out? Do you deserve to get all the flesh whipped off of your back? What do you deserve? How bad were you? You deserve death? Scripture tells us we do. We're too messed up to think we deserve death. We want to point to dictators and despots and say they deserve death. Murderers and rapists, they deserve death, but we're not that bad. That's how messed up we are. We're ready to have everyone else go to hell, but we don't think we deserve it. And the Bible is saying, no, we all, are, we all messed up at different levels, but at the end of the day, none of us can be with God. But the good news is that Jesus, right, as we celebrated with communion, his shattered, blood, his, his shattered body, his spilled blood, he's made a way to make it sure that if you repent and believe on Christ, you are saved. Not now go and earn your salvation. It's been earned by Jesus Christ. Now live in thankfulness to that. So we'll read Mark chapter 6. And we see Jesus presenting a message similar to what I just explained to you. Way better though. Because it's Jesus, of course. It's clear. It's incisive. It connects to the passage that he's reading. Whatever the passage was read that morning in, in the synagogue. And of, of course, it must be a compelling message. It's not that they don't understand the message. They understand it. Why don't they receive it as good news? Exactly. That's why Jesus is astonished. You want to continue under the burden of trying to be good enough? You want to continue your life not knowing for sure if God is going to accept you on the other side? You really want to roll the dice that your life is good enough to be with a holy, perfect being for eternity? You're comfortable with that game? You want to continue to bear the yoke of trying harder and messing up and then trying harder again and just a, you're on this treadmill of no progress. You like that? I'm here to provide freedom from that. And he's astonished. 
that in his own hometown, they will just use whatever excuse they can reach for to reject it. Now, I love how this passage ends, this paragraph, this verse. He couldn't do any mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He couldn't do the mighty works because they rejected the gospel, not because they rejected his miracle working. And then in verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. So what do you do, Jesus? What do you do? Pack up your message and just go home? And he went about among the villages teaching. I love that. That's resilient, isn't it? He goes into his own hometown. He goes into the synagogue. And they don't accept him in the synagogue. And I mean, if it were me, I'd probably think, I'd be really bummed. I'd be astonished too, but I'd be pretty depressed. Wow, these people that should get the message don't. These people that when I say turn to the book of Leviticus, they can not even look and go right to Leviticus. These are religious people. They memorize the Torah. I've explained the Torah to them and given them the good news. It should be refreshing. It should be relieving. None of us can fulfill the Torah. We need one who comes to fulfill the Torah for us. When we place our faith in him, it's fulfilled for us. That's amazing. And then they just reject it. A couple reactions we could have is to go, man, I I guess just forget it. People aren't going to listen. Or we can adjust it to go, okay, what would make them listen? Maybe more miracles. Jesus doesn't do either of those. He leaves the synagogue. He goes into the towns, wherever there may be people, to listen. And he continues teaching the gospel. Now, it's churches all across the globe, but I think especially in America, we take a different option many times. The thinking goes like this. People don't want to hear the gospel. People are offended by the gospel. So let's win them with something else and then hopefully sneak in the gospel later. So, let's start our worship set with like a secular song that makes them feel comfortable. Right? I've referenced some of these things before. Let's just, let's just um, have a coffee chat instead of a sermon. Just, people don't want to be preached at. Right? People just want to talk and have... Like, let's, let's model it after Starbucks. People love Starbucks. If we were more like Starbucks, maybe we can get more people. What do these people care about the most? They don't want people to reject the message. But since people reject the message, they drop the message or dilute it and do something else because their bottom line is no rejection. That's not Jesus' bottom line. Does Jesus want them to believe? Yes. Does his heart break for them? Yes. Is he out of his mind astonished when they don't believe it? Yes. You see this humanity in Jesus where even he just can't believe the resistance sometimes to the gospel. But does he go, okay, guys, I guess preaching isn't working. Um, How about some healings? Everybody come on up. No, he couldn't do that because that would further inoculate them to the truth. Now, some of us have family members and we go, God, if you would just do a miracle in their life, maybe they'll come. If you would just do something awesome in their life, maybe they'll come. Churches gather and strategize and close doors with the big whiteboards and big post-it note sheets up on the wall and they try to strategize. What can we do to get people in here? Can we offer pony rides? Can we give away free iPads? Instead of collecting an offering, let's collect raffles. And then at the end of the service, we'll give away a huge screen TV. 
And that'll get people in the seats. Yeah, that'll get people in the seats. What have you lost that Jesus refuses to lose? The teaching of the gospel. But Jesus' bottom line isn't people in the seats. Jesus' bottom line is what are we giving them? We need to win them with the gospel itself. And it's good news. It's refreshing news. We shouldn't want to have to change it. Changing it loses it. So when I read this passage, I'm just encouraged when Jesus experiences a disheartening, astonishing, rebellious refusal to believe in the gospel, but he doesn't change the message. And what we'll see next week, he trains, he trains his 12 disciples to go deliver this message. What about people that slam the door in our face? That's going to happen. Go to the next house. It's this resilient persistence in the unadulterated message of the gospel of Jesus Christ because only that message saves. Only that message helps. You see this as parents. Our kids aren't listening. Our teenagers aren't embracing the gospel. And we go, man, what if we just do something else? What if we stop talking about sin and stop talking about the things that are wrong? What if we just, let's do a Disney vacation or something. Let's just get them happy again. And we kind of dilute the message of the gospel. That's the wrong tack to take. Now those other things are great, but the gospel has to be central. Now when people embrace the message, what does Jesus do? He does great things for them. He does great, unbelievable things. There's healings. He's getting rid of demons. He's flipping tables in the synagogue. He's doing all kinds of crazy things that you would not expect. But he does them in the context of embracing the gospel. And when you embrace the gospel, you don't demand that every storm is calm. You don't demand that he heals every disease. Because when you embrace the gospel, you realize it's not about physical diseases. It's about my eternal problem. Once I do that, then it's on God. If he wants to do something miraculous, great. But if you're waiting for God to do something miraculous and then you'll believe, it doesn't work that way and he's not going to do it. You need to believe the message itself. And if that message itself is too offensive and pushes you away, you'll never get to that point. So brothers and sisters, I think what we need to take away from this is that yes, Jesus' message is offensive to many. It shouldn't be, but it starts with the bad news. The good news starts with the bad news. You're not good enough. <laughs> Neither am I. No one wants to hear that. There are going to be people that go, man, I know that. If I'm honest with myself, I know that. Okay, here's the good news. And they'll embrace it. But other people won't. Our tactic is not to change the message, but to stay on task. Deliver that message to those who need it. Let's pray. Father, we recognize...